LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present part two of our interview with Courtney Brown of the Farsight Institute in which we conclude our discussion of remote viewing and what it is revealing about the fundamental nature of consciousness and reality. If you missed part one, you can find it at the website legalizefreedom.com, that's legalize-freedom.com. The interview resumes as we discuss the work of physicist Hugh Everett and the resistance of mainstream science to cutting-edge quantum research into non-locality and the nature of consciousness. BBC had a marvelous special that was eventually broadcast here in the United States. And it was called Parallel Worlds, Parallel Lives. And it was on the, it was, it was, it was on the life of Hugh Everett. And it featured his son, who is now a rock star. And that, that special is now widely available, uh, both on BBC, but also it's available on YouTube uh, to watch. And it's really worth it to actually look at it so that you can actually see they, what they do is they actually in, they trace Hugh Everett's ideas and how it's finally gaining acceptance in mainstream science and how mainstream scientists have been so resistant to these ideas and who it is that's actually looking at these new ideas. These, these scientists, these new scientists that are looking at these ideas, they had to really buck a lot in order to gain access to these to these ideas. And they really had to wait till a lot of the mainstream scientists basically retired or died. But they also had to be courageous in order to do this. And now it's you don't need so much courage anymore. It, the, the, in terms of really mainstream interests, the whole hologram idea sort of broke open with people like David Bohm and uh, some other mainstream physicists. But uh, they they were trying to make a bridge between the original Copenhagen interpretation and the sort of Hugh Everett interpretation. But the reality is it's very hard to make a bridge. The Copenhagen interpretation, you really have to just throw out. And most mainstream physicists are simply not willing to do that anymore. But if you look at the BBC um, documentary on Hugh Everett, uh, again, it's parallel worlds, parallel lives. You can really see that the tide has changed and people are open now to ideas that they in the past were not open to. I mean, this affects not just remote viewing, but this also affects the issue of things like extraterrestrial life. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon at all for people who work with a lot of military people to see military, high-ranking military people sort of talk about the extraterrestrials, for example, and also to see some level of frustration in their minds when they talk about other mainstream scientists, physicists, ferociously arguing that 
A, extraterrestrials can't get here, and B, they don't exist in the first place. And then the military people just, I mean, they get sort of frustrated with the science. <laughs> and they get really quite frustrated because they're very practical people and they know they have to deal with some things. And when a scientist tells them that something can't be done when in fact they know damn well it can be done, I mean, it, it gets to be quite frustrating because you literally are saying, what am I supposed to do? Wait 50 years for these people to die off before we can actually entertain new ideas? But that often is what happens. And the people who challenge those things early often have a rough going. In fact, I must mention that Hugh Everett in 1957 left physics because he was so he was so upset with the way physics treated him. Um, his treatment uh, at the hands of people like Niels Bohr and uh, Werner Heisenberg was so rough that he was just disgusted and left. And he went into the military. He went into the, the the nuclear defense industry in the in the Pentagon. And he was one of the, if not the primary creator of the principle of MAD, which is mutually assured destruction. So he was one of the engineers of our nuclear defense program. And MAD actually saved our lives because, everybody's lives, because at that time in the United States, there were actually people in the military and in civilian leadership who were arguing in favor of a first strike, a nuclear first strike against both the Soviet Union and China to knock them out now so that we wouldn't have to face them later. And it was Hugh Everett that actually said, this is crazy. Uh, first of all, you're going to kill us as well as everybody else. And so he was the one who designed the idea of mutually assured destruction, which is we build our missiles and point them at them, and they build their missiles and point them at us, and nobody will pull the trigger because everybody will die if anything happens. So that was Hugh Everett who did that. And he did that as a way of stopping the discussion of the very real discussion people were having of doing a first strike. And so it really saved all of our lives. Now we're in a situation where Russia and China are our allies. And how would history have actually, of those who survived, how would history have actually remembered the United States if it actually had pursued these, this talk of a first strike? I mean, we would have been in there with Hitler and Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan and everything else. So we really have a lot to uh, thank Hugh Everett for, and if that's not a good reason to at least give him the time of day to listen to his original ideas, I don't know what else is. I mean, Parallel Worlds, Parallel Lives is really worth watching for any of those who are interested in it. Now, talking about military programs and the military being pragmatic and practical, in terms of remote viewing, uh, the military have had significant success, but it's been somewhat different out in the civilian world, as it were, in the remote viewing lab. And it's partly to do with the military focus and how they actually go about the pro uh, remote viewing and what they're actually trying to get from it. Well, they actually want it to be operational, and that's what they, that's what they are right now. They, they want to be able to see a terrorist attack before it happens. Uh, they want to actually watch it. And then to stop it from happening. So they want to, when they remote view something, they actually see the explosion happen, and then they do something to prevent the explosion from happening. <laughs> and this again, immediately brings up Hugh Everett's ideas of there being other worlds, because how can you see an, a terrorist attack happening and then stop it from happening if it doesn't already exist? So you're actually watching it in one reality and then stopping it in another reality. So you're actually creating alternate timelines. So this whole idea of alternate timelines and other realms, other universes, 
that used to be something of Star Trek science fiction, but it's not anymore. In fact, mainstream science was absolutely adamant in saying that there are there is there are no other universes. There's just one. We started in a big bang. And it's just now that scientists are recognizing, and we actually announced two weeks ago, <laughs> that they have unequivocal evidence in the background radiation for the Big Bang that other universes do exist. In fact, billions of other universes exist. I mean, it just came out. And for those people who have been working in, in, in other areas of science, such as the remote viewing field, such as myself, they'll never turn around and say they're sorry. But we've been arguing in favor of multiple universes using clear experiments. We have, you know, a, a very clear, we have very clear theories, a very clear prediction, and very clear results. And according to mainstream science, those results should have been accepted long ago. But you get the carry-on of the Carl Sagan idea of extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. It basically says, doesn't matter what evidence you show us, we're not gonna look at it. And that's been a problem. But now they are finally saying that there is evidence, physical evidence of billions of other universes. Um, I think they'll, I don't know how long it's gonna take them to understand that what they call a universe actually isn't a universe, but we use the word universe almost synonymously with parallel realms, parallel ex parallel realities, uh, alternate timelines. And it's the word universe is being misused in that sense because it's actually within our universe, within one single universe, you have an infinite number of varieties of ourselves. So you don't actually have separate universes that are out there beyond our universes, they actually, these other existences, parallel realities, actually occur within ourselves, just as other, just as frequency combinations that are differing in some type of quantum signature or quantum base frequency. We can't see them, but they exist. And the technology will eventually happen where you will be able to see them. But right now, we're not quite there yet. You know the TV show, the that's now over called The Fringe. J.J. Abrams was the one who directed it, and he's now the one who, who did the recent Star Trek movie, and he's also gonna be doing the new Star Wars movies. And the basic idea is, in The Fringe is that there's a parallel reality or a parallel universe, and they focus on two universes, two realities. And in one universe, they developed a sort of a, a way to project onto a screen what was happening in another, so they could see what was going on in another universe. And then eventually they figured out how to travel, uh, how to move things between universes. But it started out with being able to see. Well, right now we're sort of in that state. We have learned how to use the human physiology, how the human, the human nervous system in order to see what's going on elsewhere. And we will then eventually develop technology that can duplicate that with much higher resolution. And eventually we'll have technology that will be able to move things across these various things. But that's what this remote viewing stuff is all about. It's actually at the core of a new level of science that is so different from anything that we teach at the universities today. It's amazing. In fact, the, the real issue is as soon as remote viewing is allowed Actually, as soon as it's acknowledged to exist, you actually have to throw out so much 
you have to throw out an enormous amount of mainstream physics. I mean, everything that's being taught in the classes has to be modified uh, in not a small way, a huge way in, in regard to uh, physics. But then you then have to change everything that you teach in psychology also because psychology is based on a physiological interpretation of the mental of the of, of the mind that is ultimately tied back to freud and so there are other people who have done work in psychology that have been influential such as young but freud is the bottom line for modern day psychology and now we're entering into a time where we're going to be seeing that freud is just a tip of the iceberg and we're really talking about a level of consciousness that extends way beyond what we normally think of as the human mind that's infinite in scope that can transfer information across time and space and that the whole issue of spirituality can be understood scientifically in a ways that Freud could never understood it before could have never understood it so before so Freud's ideas of the mind will collapse like a house of cards it'll just be it'll just be interpreted as uh, sort of the way we think of it as witchcraft in the future, but right now it's one of the basic, the basic main pillars of all of of all of science. When mainstream scientists say, "Respect us because at our foundation," the two big guys that they say are at the foundation of all modern science are Freud, and the other one is Charles Darwin, and so Darwin will be thrown out as well. I mean, what you're doing with evolution is connecting the dots that you decide you want to connect and eliminating a whole bunch of dots that you don't want to connect. So the whole issue of evolution will come into question. That The whole idea that anatomically correct humans popped out of apes just a couple hundred thousand years ago is so stupid. It takes hundreds of millions of years to evolve a human out of an ape. What we're really coming to is an understanding that anatomically correct humans have coexisted with apes. And you can draw the dots however you want, but the idea that we just sort of evolved and that human civilization is a is a new thing is just going to be realized as garbage in the future. So you have pillars like Darwin and Freud, they're going to collapse. Now, for something like that to happen to the university system is huge. I mean, that's not going to be done without a big fight. I mean, that's those are biggies. Those are as big as you could possibly get. So all that will happen simply with the acknowledgement that the remote viewing phenomenon is real. Because it's, even if one remote viewing experience is correct, if even one happened ever, then all of that has to be changed. Because not only will the physics change, but then the findings that remote viewers have found will also come out. And, and then we'll realize how circumscribed and how limited uh, the science that we actually teach at the university actually is. So it's going to open up a whole new realm of, of science. And that's not going to happen easily. Uh, remote viewing is starting to penetrate, but my expectation is it will penetrate the mass media first and that the academy, the universities, will be the last. By the way, I must obviously say I am a tenured professor at a major university. I don't teach any of this there. In fact, I teach uh, mathematics. I teach, a, I teach stats, statistics and mathematics. I'm an applied mathematician in a social science program. So I don't teach any of this there. So um, I, don't do, I don't even discuss remote viewing at the university. Although I do talk about remote viewing at other universities worldwide when I'm invited to speak there. But we're talking about a level, we're not talking about changing just one paradigm. We're talking about 
a whole host of paradigms, Greg, that will just rivet, I mean, shake everything out of its, shake everything out of, out of its, um, out of their foundations when the remote viewing phenomenon sort of is widely accepted. But it's going to go, first it's being extended to the masses, then it's going to be picked up by mainstream media, and then eventually scientists will start it'll bleed into the academia, into the scientific community. And eventually somebody will come along uh, and write some type of major book and other academics will say, finally, we have somebody who said it coherently. And they'll, they'll say that is their beginning. And, uh, and then you'll see, you know, change happen after that. But it's gonna be, it's gonna be some while still and there's gonna be some, some interesting battles that go down, down the pike. Picking up your thread about time, it's important that you mentioned a remote viewing target uh, may be in a different time from the viewer, but it must simultaneously exist. You know, a viewer yeah. is not viewing some sort of holographic memory of it. No. And this uh, is showing us that time really is an artificial construct and the idea that the past no longer exists or that the future does not yet exist is false. Yes, that's exactly the case. So what is happening is all things exist simultaneously and they never go away. And what happens is that the, the mind of the remote viewer is tuned to a particular spot in time and space and thus essentially merges or enters into a state of superposition with that time and space and thus becomes part of that time and space and then can perceive it and then writes it down, writes it down on a piece of paper. So that's what happens and it goes to the past as well as the future. Remote viewing the past and the present has always been very easy, relatively speaking. Remote viewing the future has always been the tough one because when you remote view, say, the sinking of the Titanic, well, of course, the remote viewer doesn't know that's a target, but if someone does pick that as a target, there is no ambiguity about what you want that person to perceive. You want that person to perceive the sinking of the Titanic. So even if there are multiple timelines, you're selecting one out that did, that does occur in your time stream. And so that remote viewer always gets it right. When you go into the future, it's a different story. You don't have a memory of what's out in the future. So the basic idea is as follows, and it does again tie back to the physics that was developed by Hugh Everett. You have a constant branching, a branching at every moment of the now. So at every moment of the now, every single instant, you have a branching into multiple futures. Now, it's impossible to predict the future as a single thing because there is no single thing from any moment of the now. There is only multiple futures. Similarly, there are multiple pasts, but you can pick out a particular past because it's in your time stream and you know exactly what you want. But in the future, you don't know what you want because it hasn't happened yet. So you're remote viewing something that you really don't know. And anything that's out there basically becomes fair game. So remote viewing the future has always been a problem. And that's been one of the primary focuses of research that we've done at the Farsight Institute. That also is relating to one of the announcements that, that were actually two of the announcements of the two announcements that we're going to be putting out this month, again, on our newsletter. So. Uh, in June is issuing two major announcements relative to our understand with our research uh, with respect to time. With remote reviewing, if we can learn from the past and from the present as it is elsewhere, and then you discuss the possibility of seeing 
a future and affecting events, it, well, it prompts a couple of questions, really. One, can the future affect the present? And can we change history? Now, I know you sort of addressed those in a roundabout way, but so can the future affect the present and can we change history? According to the theory, and it does seem to be backed up by the remote viewing evidence, all things happen. So there is a version of the 20th century in which all of the major wars of the 20th century, World War I and World War II, simply didn't occur. And there's another version of the 20th century in which World War II ended with nuclear destruction. So all things happen. So when you say, can we change history? What you're really saying is, can a, can a particular moment of the now that has a sequential history that traces back through a certain set of events, can it be moved horizontally to jump over to another point? And we don't know how to do that, but theoretically it could. What that would mean if that happened is that person would then have a different history. Then the question is whether they would remember their first history or not. I mean, this is raising a level of questioning that we simply don't know the answers to. It has been theorized that in the biblical days when there were healings and say Jesus would heal the masses or heals people, it has been theorized that what was actually occurring was not a healing at all, but a modification of the person's timeline such that they didn't get the disease that they had. And then the history of them would change. The question is, do they then remember having had the disease if their history changed? Those people seem to remember, but if there were biblical healings, it seems that that's how the healings actually would have occurred. Uh, not by literally fixing the disease, like taking antibiotics, but you know, switching horizontally to having not gotten it in the first place. And according to biblical history, they did seem to remember having had the disease. So that seems to suggest that the answer to your question is yes, can you change history? And apparently it means it might be possible to change the present such that the present looks like it would if it had a different historical past. And it might be possible also to remember the first historical past, even though you're on a different time, a different timeline. Again, this is, this is science that's beyond what we are, where we are right now. But at least we can conceive of the questions, whereas before we couldn't have even conceived of those questions. Now, there's fascinating information that you present regarding a remote viewing process, and that is the effect of the mind of the analyst. That's the person who analyzes the data after the event, that yeah. the effect that that actually has on the data and on the perception of the viewer. That was a big discovery, and it was made at the Farsight Institute. That was never understood in the early days of remote viewing research. You see, they all, the, the early days of remote viewing uh, research, they never understood why a remote viewer would focus on one thing and not another. Meaning, why should the remote viewer be focusing their mind on the sinking of the Titanic? I mean, why, why does that work? Why didn't they focus on something else just because this Titanic was a target? Well, what we found out was that the remote viewer is doing the remote viewing with the intent of satisfying the informational needs of the analyst. And the analyst is the person who first 
compares the remote viewing data that the remote viewer collects with the actual target. And so if you have 20 pages of data, you're carefully looking at each page and comparing those pages to the actual data that you have about the actual target. Well, what we found out was it's that process of analyzing the data that actually produces the focus of perception. Meaning when the remote viewer is remote viewing the target, they are unknowingly making a telepathic connection with the analyst who's focusing on, who's actually analyzing the data. <laughs> and the thoughts of the analyst are what determine the focus of perception of the remote viewer. So this was discovered inadvertently because of a faulty experimental design that was widely used in early remote viewing research where they would have remote viewers remote view a target and that target would be one of a small group of targets, a pool of targets of say five. And so one of the targets of the five would be real and the other would be decoys. So what would basically happen is a computer or some random device would pick which one of the five targets is going to be the real one and thus the others would be decoys. Then they take the remote viewing data and give it to some judges who were blind. Now that doesn't mean that their eyes were blind. It means that they were not told which was the correct target, which was the target that was the real one and which was the decoys. So they would have the actual remote viewing data and they'd look at all five targets and they'd say, which target do these data look like? So they would try to evaluate the accuracy of remote viewing by comparing the data to the actual all five targets. And they didn't know that the process of them comparing the data to the targets was producing the focus of perception. So what we would often get is really good sessions, but of the wrong target. They're not the target that was chosen. It's not the target that was chosen by the computer. But nonetheless, it was a really good description of one of the other targets. And so that became known as the displaced target phenomenon, and sometimes known as the cross-cutting side channels. But the basic idea is you got good descriptions of the wrong target. And the remote viewing scientists didn't understand that they were corrupting the data. They didn't understand that their thought processes were involved in the data collection. They were actually trying to separate out the data collection and the classical methods of separating it in time and space and saying, as long as I'm not near the remote viewer and as long as I'm you know, in the future, the remote viewing was done in the past, then I can do whatever I want with the data. And they misunderstood that the process of remote viewing is non-local and it extends across time and space and their thoughts in fact did matter. So what we do now in our current experiments is we control for this exactly. So we set up our experiments so that, so that that's those pregnant moments of comparing the data to the targets for the first time are very well controlled and are very well structured so we know what's actually happening. And so we don't have this displaced target phenomenon uh, in our experiment. So anyway, that was a very interesting Eureka experience. And actually, we were very grateful to the fatally flawed experimental design that was used for so long because it led to this displaced target phenomenon. And that displaced target phenomenon led to us discovering what the actual focus, what the actual sort of 
process was going on, the psychic process was going on to actually produce that focus of perception that the remote viewers had. And that was really, that was, that was probably the greatest moment in research when we realized why remote viewers have a certain focus of perception and not some other focus of perception. To know that that telepathic link occurred, that was probably our biggest single discovery. We've, we've discovered an awful lot of important things, but that was probably the very biggest the idea we discussed that all possibilities actually occur and the concept of a, a multiverse or just alternate realities, that could have some fundamental ramifications for the idea of who and what we are as individuals. Because if there's, say, a trillion me's living yeah. increasingly divergent existences and yes. a tr in, in a trillion increasingly divergent universes, then what does that mean about me sitting here today talking to you sitting there? That's exactly right. I'm not sure what more of a comment I had. You said it exactly right. What does that mean? That means there is another version of you, and it's not something out of science fiction. But there is not just one other version of you. There's an infinite number of versions of you, and they all exist, and they're all as equally real as you. And technologically, they can be eventually find, found. I mean, eventually, it'll be a matter of tuning them in and seeing them on a computer screen and saying, hi, Greg other guy <laughs> but you know it's it all deals with this process of frequency combination this process of superposition i like to think of ourselves as highly complex superposition ensembles and if you think of a superposition ensemble the superposition is that collection of frequencies that coalesce and interfere with each other produce that wave packet well that may produce in a quantum mechanical perspective, a particle perceived as somehow existing within that frequency on that frequency collection. Well, you put a bunch of those together, you get an atom, a bunch of those together, you get a molecule, a bunch of those together, you get a cell, a bunch of those together, you get a body, a bunch of those together, you get a planet and solar system, a galaxy. And so basically what we are, are very advanced, very complicated, very sophisticated, very, very intricate superposition ensembles, collections of superpositions. Well, the only thing that really differs between us and any other superposition ensemble is sort of an average frequency. So if you shift us up or down, change our frequency combination somewhat, well, we're going to be different people. Think of it this way. If you take a coin out of your pocket and you hold it in one hand, and you look at it and say, okay, I see that coin there. And then you take that same coin and you put it in your other hand. It was originally in your right hand, and then you put it in your left hand. Well, you actually have a different coin in your left hand. And you say, oh, what are you talking about? This is the same coin. I saw it. I even saw myself, you know, put it from one hand to the next. It's the same exact thing. And I say, no, it's not. You see, that coin that you had in your right hand was defined by an equation, a quantum mechanical equation that has the specification of time and space in it. It has a very clear quantum mechanical equation. And the coin that's in your left hand also has a quantum mechanical equation that defines it, and they are not the same. They have different values in them. It's not the same coin. It's a different coin. It may look like the same coin. You may think you transferred it, but once you changed it in terms of time and space, its equation changed, and thus its identity changed. Well, think of yourself in past and the future and in different places 
as very similar to this alternate reality. Greg, we started this interview about an hour ago. Well, that reality of us still exists, but you don't see it anymore. But we're still there talking an hour ago, but we don't see it anymore. So the equation of us now is different from the equation of us an hour ago, which is why we're not bumping into one another. That's the same as the quarter in one hand and the quarter in another. Similarly, they, what is the real difference between you and I an hour ago and you and I in an alternate reality? There's not really any difference. There's a frequency difference. There is the equation that's different. But you and I still existed an hour ago and you and I in an alternate reality, we don't see it that alternate reality right now, but it still exists just like the past still exists, but we don't see it. So this whole idea of remote viewing allows us to bring into our minds all of these ideas that are, um, that are completely forbidden if you limit the paradigms to simply Newtonian, classical, and relativistic physics. So it, it completely changes this discussion. And it finally allows us to look in the direction of a generalization of quantum mechanics. Right now, physicists, mainstream physicists, have this absolutely bizarre <laughs> setup where they have the quantum mechanical world working on one set of principles and the classical world working on another set of principles and this imaginary line of decoherence separating the two. So you have two, two set of rules, one for quantum and one for classical, and a line of decoherence that separates the two. And it's totally unsupportable because everything in the classical realm is made up of the quantum realm. You can't say one set of principles works in the quantum realm and one set of principles works in the, in the classical realm. It's, we're, we're, all, we're made up of the exact same thing. So the basic thing is we're, going to, we're learning how to reinterpret the classical realm in quantum mechanical terms. And so we are looking at a generalization of quantum mechanics that has not been allowed until recently. And it was basically forbidden intellectually because of the dominance of the early schools of, of, of quantum mechanics that was dominated by the Copenhagen interpretation, which basically said that things manifest into solid real things out of a quantum mechanical probabilistic ether by observing them. As John Wheeler said, nothing really occurs in the quantum mechanical realm unless it's observed or registered in some way. And we're now understanding that process of registration or observing is actually part of the superposition process itself and it can be generalized to the classical realm as, and not limited to the quantum realm. Now, one of the promises that remote viewing holds is that not only may it offer insight into um, ideas about cosmology or cutting-edge theories about the fundamental nature of reality, it can also perhaps offer a means of testing some of the theories that are already there. Absolutely. In fact, we conducted a year-long test in the idea of multiple universes uh, using remote viewing by seeing if we could accurately describe a future target by having the tasker or the person who designs the target placed in the future. So we call this a temporal outbounder. So we had a theory, a prediction, 
and we spent a year getting a result, and the results were overwhelmingly. And those results were published in a leading peer-reviewed scientific journal, the Journal of Scientific Exploration. And basically, the experimental design, and you can get a copy of that free, that article on uh, our website at farsight.org, www.farsight.org. And while you're getting a free copy of the article, sign up for that free newsletter. That's the only way we'll ever you'll ever hear what we do. And so the basic idea is that the with the with that research that we did, we took an experimental design and separated it into three periods. So we had, say, three months. And on the first month, we'd have all the remote viewers do their sessions. And the target, or the thing that they were supposed to, be, to perceive, did not exist at the time they were doing their sessions. So we then took all of the sessions and uploaded them onto the web in encrypted form. No one could look at them, but they could download them all over the world and hold them on our hard drive, on their hard drives, uh, so that we, they had proof that we could not cheat. And so they had all those sessions distributed everywhere. And then on the second month, the target, or the thing that was supposed to be perceived, happened anywhere in the world, meaning anything that happened in the world is acceptable as a possible target, as long as it was a newsworthy thing that we could get evidence for using internet sources like CNN or you know New York Times or whatever. And then in the third month, the tasker or the person who picked the target was to pick what target it was that is to be used for the, for the experiment out of anything that happened in the entire world during the second month. So the first month, the sessions were done, the second month, everyone sits around where the whole month is, we just wait. And then the third month, someone, a special person, picks a target out of the infinite collection of stuff that happened in the middle month. Then we take the target that was decided on in the third month, put it up on the web, plus the password to decrypt the sessions that were done two months earlier, <laughs> and we had a perfect match. You see, for the tasker, that target was in his or her past, meaning for that tasker, it was in the past because it happened in the second month and the tasker was choosing the target in the third month. But the target was in the future for the remote viewer who did, it in, who did their sessions in the first month. So the sessions are done first, something happens in the world and this, after that, and then the tasker actually picks whatever it is that they want to use for a target in the third month. So. Under those conditions, we accurately described the remote viewing target each and every time. The problem occurs, and, that, and that, was the, that was the proof, that the accuracy would go up. If, if we have a situation of multiple universes, the accuracy of the sessions of describing future events would go up if the person picking the target was in the future and that the target was in that person's past, even though it was in the future of the remote viewer, when the remote viewer did the sessions. And so we had a theory, a prediction, and we had a result, and it got published. So those are the types of things where we actually do experiments into the nature of reality using remote viewing. And hopefully we were gonna, we're going to be moving into a time period in which these types of experiments can be done collaboratively with mainstream physicists, the ones that you know will be willing to entertain these types of ideas. 
and the amount of forward movement that we will get in science is just, you know, mind-boggling when, when that moment happens. Courtney, everything we've been talking about today, what is it saying about the concept of human free will? Because, you know, I was thinking after this, I was going to go to the store to buy some pasta sauce. And now I'm thinking, well, who's chosen that and am I going to go? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a great point. When we say we have free will, what do we actually mean? Well, if every moment of the now forks into various futures, then how do we actually have free will if, in fact, we're branching into all possible things that could happen out of our present. Well, free will is probably going to have to be redefined, but even under the current description, understanding of free will, you could claim that we have free will if remote viewing is used to perceive the future, at least one of the futures, and bring that information back to the present and then based on that information, we decide whether we want to go in that direction or go in a different direction. That's free will. That's free will as we would currently define it. So remote viewing actually opens the door to a real understanding, a real manifestation of free will that we really didn't have before. This idea of the constant reality of the now branching that, by the way, is very difficult for many people. And even back in Hugh Everett's day, in the 19, late 1950s, it was a very challenging idea among, among mainstream physicists. And he entered into a conversation with Bryce DeWitt, uh, another mainstream physicist back, that, back in those days. And he said, Bryce DeWitt said, I look, you know, I don't have any problems with your mathematics, but this idea of branching is just just so untenable. I mean, it's just, it's just so stupid. I mean, I see myself now. I, there is no branching. I'm not branching. There is no forking out into different futures. It just doesn't happen. I'm, not look, I'm looking at it. There's no branching. And Hugh Everett's response to that was that Bryce DeWitt really couldn't claim that because it would be comparable to going back to the days of Copernicus when Copernicus was saying that the earth revolved around the sun rather than uh, what they thought at the time was that the sun was revolving around the earth and the earth was stationary. And people back in those days would have said, that's so stupid, you can't say that the earth is revolving around the sun. We're stationary, I don't feel anything, I'm not moving. If we were revolving around the sun, I'd be flying all over the place. Well, I'm obviously stable here, and the sun is the one that's moving around us. Look at it. It's moving, and I'm steady. And that was, of course, before the time of Newton. There was no understanding of momentum, and all of Newtonian mechanics had not yet been discovered. So they didn't understand back in those days that they would be part of the system as observers, and they wouldn't feel the movement as the movement went around the sun. And so Bryce DeWitt's response to that analogy, that comparison, was touche. It was a good point. You made a good point. And so that was Hugh Everett's response. And that's the response that I would actually give to what we just talked about, that we really can't understand this branching from an experiential basis without 
really understanding the remote viewing phenomena because we don't feel the branching. It happens so seamlessly. But with remote viewing, you get clear evidence that it does in fact occur. Well, Courtney, in conclusion uh, today, with regards to the fundamental nature of reality, the, the ground of being, however you want to put it, my personal intuition, if it, indeed there's anything personal anymore, is that there is kind of an underlying consciousness, an underlying field of consciousness, you know, a mind, if you will, a, a singular intelligence that's you, it's me, it, it's everything, and furthermore, that it, there's meaning there. This is now going into the realm of Courtney's interpretation of all of this in terms of the big picture. What I do is I look at all of these and I say, how does this really boil down to everything that is? If everything in the universe is frequency-based, then we have, a, we have a frequency-based universe. That means all life is based and all animate and inanimate objects Everything is based on frequency combinations. And if we are alive, then that means we are alive based on just these frequency combinations. That means the frequency combinations, the frequencies themselves are alive. And so I sort of view the idea of God as all that is, meaning everything that exists is it. And we are simply frequency combinations of it. And so it is not possible from that perspective to think of God as a separate entity that's out there and that we have to hope treats us well or we will be banished or hurt or sent to hell or whatever because we are made up of its own frequencies. So the only way I can interpret this is that God, or all that is, is sufficiently sophisticated that it wants to experience life as Greg Moffat, and it wants to experience life as Courtney Brown, and is doing so simultaneously in all the infinite versions of us all at once. And that it is impossible to find God, sort of separate from oneself, because we are God. It's not separable. The only thing that we can do is discover that we are more localized focuses of a larger thing, but we are part of the larger thing. Think of a spider that has these eyes, that are, you know, the, or the fly's eyes. You know that, how they have, like, um, science has actually come up with ways to produce pictures of what it looks like for a fly to see, and they actually have, like, zillions of these lenses, and they're all watching out the sort of think of an infinite version of that, where each of these lenses that the fly has is actually a different person, a different personality. And God, or all that is, is experiencing all of those lives simultaneously, all at once. And that's apparently how God exists and grows. And so that when we come up with something new, when we do something, when we try new things, we create new pathways through the probabilistic spaces of frequencies. And that's apparently how God evolves and grows by literally evolving and growing by our choices. So yeah, I do think there is such a thing as free will. I think it's built into the universe down to the level of the smallest quantum mechanical particle. 
somehow it's in the essential nature of existence and this is a free will universe that is supposed to expand and grow based on decisions that we make that we make based on the contrast that we perceive things that we like and don't like and it's a very complicated way of existence but it seems to be the way God exists uh, manifesting through all of us and eventually we will look at each other and see that we're looking at other pieces of us. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Courtney, you've mentioned your newsletter already, but just perhaps in closing, you'd like to share with listeners information about your books. Um, you mentioned the website already, but also, you know, you've got a DVD um, just out. Yeah, so. we, we actually we have a new one coming out. Um, we have a, a, a couple DVDs out already, um, but uh, and, and they really help. You know, we, we have a lot of stuff up free on the YouTube, but some things you just can't present in a three-minute YouTube surfer mentality. You have to say, sit down and watch this thing. And so some things, we, we, we always put our remote viewing sessions and explanations up free on the web. But every once in a while, we say, this has to be a sit-down experience. It's, it's not a three-minute deal. So we, we make a, a DVD out of that. And, and we have one coming out that is unbelievable. I mean, it's just one of the best things that we've done in the longest time. And it's about a, a real, using two of the best military-grade remote viewers ever. We have really good archaeological evidence, really good photographic evidence of ruins on the bottom of the ocean of a huge civilization. And we have the entire remote viewing story of what happened. We call it Atlantis because some time within the last 100,000 years, there was a highly advanced technological civilization of us. It wasn't like some alien group on another distant planet somewhere. It was us. And we had a level of technology a little bit more advanced, maybe 100 years more advanced than what we have now. And we destroyed ourselves. We just... We just and we have the whole story of what happened and how it happened in secrecy cloaked science way back just a few tens of thousands of years ago, and they basically they basically buckled the our entire planet is essentially a very thin balloon of a solid crust on a, on otherwise a molten ball of liquid rock and it doesn't take much to buckle the crust. And they did something that buckled the crust. And we have the whole story. And uh, the, the remote viewing sessions are already up on the web. But we have the, the, the story on video and DVD that's coming out in June that explains it. You actually see the people and understand what they're doing when they're sitting in front of their computer monitors and watch what's happening. They see their last moments. Do you see what they did to try to save themselves? I mean, it's like unbelievable to see it all pieced together and that's the type of thing that you're going to change i mean it's once you realize the remote viewing phenomenon is real then the data you can get back from those who are really good at it change everything and so the whole idea of a major advanced civilization on earth us not some aliens us that changes not only archaeological uh, discussions but it also changes contemporary discussions about secrecy cloak science, whether that's always a good thing. Um, because 
you know, once the masses realized that secrecy cloak science destroyed their their own entire civilization, and we are the survivors, we are actually the descendants of maybe 2,000 pairs of survivors. That's actually, that's actually been known in terms of genetics for a long while, that everyone on the planet Earth are related to, a, a, to the same 2,000 pairs of people, two or three or 4,000 pairs of people that survived some cataclysm some tens of thousands of years ago. That's actually not too much in dispute. What they didn't understand is what that cataclysm was, and now we have it. Anyway, that's, that's coming out, and uh, we're going to be announcing that on the newsletter uh, in June in just uh, a couple of weeks. So, but we have something else that's coming out also that's just a, a, um, a full explanation of a major project that we just did on uh, the climate project. So you can see, Greg, we really are a nonprofit. A lot of the things I'm plugging now are simply free things that we have up on our web. <laughs> but that's what we do. We're a nonprofit. We do research and we show it. And every once in a while, we have to have you sit down to watch something that's longer. So we sell it as a, we put it out as a DVD. But, you know, making money is not what we do. Uh, what we do is the science of remote viewing. And that's, that is what drives us when we wake up every morning. Excellent. Well, Courtney Brown, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. It's been my great pleasure, Greg. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. It's LegalizeFreedom.com, Legalize-Freedom.com. And there you'll find an archive of programs on many equally interesting and important topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.